Welcome to Facilitating the Mission, the podcast of Shepherd Staff Mission Facilitators. My name is Brian Mondock. And I am Jeff Jackson. Hello, Brian. Hey, Jeff. So good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you, man. The midst of busy weeks, busy lives, right? Oh, yeah, it's crazy. And uh, I'm really looking forward to a short trip out to Albuquerque, to Shepherd Staff headquarters to talk about, well, just to connect and talk about the future and what we're doing communications, look at the new website that'll be coming out soon. I'm pretty stoked about that. Uh, maybe it's too soon to talk about that stuff, but sometimes when I'm excited, you can't shut me <laughs> up. No, I think it's good to talk about it. And it's good to kind of put a fresh coat of paint on something that you've been doing for a while and, um, and you know, let that fresh coat sort of bring out some things that maybe people didn't know about. It's going to be fun looking about how we present ourselves in the future. That being the case, Jeff, one of the things that we haven't done since, at least since I've been co-hosting this with you, is really unpack the Shepherd Staff story. We hear little bits and pieces now and then. We hear about your time in the mission field, but I think it's the time is right to really, especially with our newer listeners, you know, explain who Shepherd Staff is, where it came from, how it started. And and so, Jeff, why don't you just do that? Why don't you tell us how Shepherd Staff started? And then I'll have some other questions after that. Oh, I'd love to do that. You know, that's that's easy for me to talk about. Well, you know, Shepherd Staff started, really, it started way back when, in, in uh, you know, the mid-1980s, not long after I had come to the Lord, when I was in the military, uh, you know, my wife and I had lived in northern Japan for a year and a half when I was stationed at Masawa Air Force Base, and we lived in the Japanese community outside the base. And so I had had my first taste of cross-cultural living there. Eventually, you know, came to the Lord after I got out of the military, got plugged into a local small Calvary chapel, and just really kind of grew in the Lord there. I got got called to be a pastor. I, that wasn't something I was seeking, but I got called to be a pastor. And and that was kind of confirmed by my pastor and other people in the church. And so what I did was, you know, we began praying, okay, if this is what God's called me to do, you know, what what does that mean that I'm going to be a pastor? And it was like God re-stirred that desire to, to do cross-cultural ministry and to potentially, you know, serve in another country. So you were a pastor at, at your church, you were a church planner. What, what kind of pastor were you at the time? Well, I went on staff with my church as the assistant pastor. This would have been uh, 85. And so I went on staff with him and sort of oversaw the men's ministry and the children's ministry, all that kind of stuff. But we had just recently at that time, we had merged together with another small church and together spent, sent that pastor of the other small church to plant a church on a small Pacific island. And so- um, Oh, wow. So I was involved in that, kind of handling this person's newsletters and coordinating his team and everything. And God was stirring my own heart and my wife's heart to the possibility of becoming missionaries to take the gospel, you know, to faraway places and and to get it to people that didn't have access to the same level of gospel material, biblically based materials that we did uh, here in America. So up to this point, though, you have not served as a missionary you served in the military yes in a foreign country but let's be realistic when you're in the military you're you know you live within walls and it's you yeah. know it's a it's a it's a little america inside 
uh, you know, a foreign culture. It is, but what, but what was unique about us is we didn't live on the base. We lived in the Japanese community outside the base. Ah. So that, that made a big difference. Uh, so we were interacting and spending a lot of time, you know, interacting with the, with the community, uh, the Japanese community there in Masala. Yeah, there's some cross-cultural exposure there. And then, you know, what did I know? I was a kid at the time. I was like 19, 18 and 19. And, and, but, but I was intrigued by their culture by the honor shame culture, this city of 70,000 or whatever at the time that had almost no crime, the way they defer to senior, their senior citizens, the, you know, just the whole Asian cultural, collectivistic cultural stuff was just intriguing to me and stimulating to me, exhilarating to me. And so, you know, again, I wasn't a believer, but that was just interesting. And I don't think there's any theological angle to it. I've just always been intrigued by things that are not like me. I loved National Geographic's when I was a kid. I loved watching programs on TV about tribal people in Africa. If if anything was different to me growing up, you know, if it, if it was in contrast to the, the the experiences that I had in my day to day life, I was interested in. I was just always intrigued by that. So it wasn't like I looked at the Japanese people that we lived among and, and interacted with and, and thought of it from a theological angle at all. Right. It was just, I just found it was really interesting, fascinating. And, and then to compare it with us. So, uh, you know, to us as Americans and then us as military Americans. And so, yeah, so that was sort of the seeds for, to me, the seeds for an interest in serving cross-culturally and connecting with people from other cultures I mean, I, I think I was wired with those seeds from the time I was a kid. And then, and then it was just like the, when, when I became a Christian, all of a sudden now the ability to understand those differences and, and value them was like the light was turned on. Like this is God's design. So that was your only cross-cultural experience prior to being a pastor was that military experience. It was that. And then once I got saved, when I met the Lord at 22, uh, and we plugged into the small Calvary Chapel, there was a lot of ministry going on in Tijuana, which is only a 40-minute drive away from where our church was. And so because of that cross-cultural itch that I was always looking to scratch, I started going down with different teams and finding out what was going on in Tijuana and, and spent a lot of time crossing the border to be involved with missionaries that were working in the Tijuana area. And then eventually I, w- I wound up, well, once I just prior to going on staff with the church, I actually took a weekend, a Friday off of work, and I went to some training down in Tijuana on how to mobilize a local church for global impact. And I spent a weekend down there and I just, I loved it. I lived with a Mexican family in their little house there in the Playas area of Tijuana. You know, funny, funny story about you and Tijuana, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I bring up your name to my wife, she's like, oh, yeah, I remember that time I had to follow Jeff to Tijuana in a car and I couldn't keep up. You know, Jeff is like, he's like, you know, like a shot out. You know, I couldn't keep up with him in his car. He knew his way around. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you, crazy. You, you totally knew Tijuana. I did. For, uh, <laughs> I, I did. I, that's why I wasn't a good guide, actually. I was a failure as a guide. <laughs> that's one of my wife's first impression is uh, your failure as a guide. <laughs> yeah. 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 And yeah. And it was just, you know, it was just so intriguing. And, and I and I actually, I, I've explained this a different way. I don't know. You know, I, I my dad was a mechanic. I grew up, 
I don't know how to fix anything or car, but I understand how a car works and the cylinders. Uh, so my dad, you know, I would use the example of, and I've used the example of like God's created all of us as a V8. You know, we have eight cylinders. An eight-cylinder uh -huh. car will run if even four of the cylinders are shut down. If they stop working, the car will keep, the engine will keep running. It won't be as powerful or good. And I, I use this analogy because it kind of connects with people. The way I'm wired, it's like if I'm not in a cross-cultural context being provoked by people that are radically different from me, it's like three cylinders of my eight-cylinder engine are on, on they're neutral. Mm. And so when I get on a plane to fly overseas or when I get in my car and I cross the border into Tijuana, it's like these other three cylinders ignite and I'm an engine running on all eight cylinders and everything is tuned in, in, in the right time. And I, I, it, there's a sense of exhilaration and excitement that that is literally as soon as I cross back into the United States or land back on the ground here, it's like those two or three cylinders shut down. Totally understand that. That's a great, that's a, that is a great analogy. <laughs> and so, uh, which is one, you know, interesting thing. If you, you know, fast forward to, you know, years and you're, you're familiar, you visit us in Phoenix. One of the things that made our season in Phoenix so exhilarating to me was the refugee ministry where like I'm running on, yeah, my five or six cylinders as a pastor, pastoring here in America. But when I go to the, a, a small apartment of refugees and all their shoes are on the porch and there's the smell of their, their particular food cooking right. and I enter that door, man, bam, those eight cylinders are, are hammering again. And I just, I just love it. I don't know. It's just the way I'm wired. I totally understand that. So, uh, so you're not a missionary yet, though. Tell us about no, going to the mission no. field. So what happened is we sent this other couple uh, to to over there, and I was their point man in our church. But now God's stirring this, and so my wife and I begin to pray. Long story short, God directs us to move to the central Philippines. We sell everything we have. And uh, in that process, my pastor says to me, he says, look, I think God wants us to continue to send people to the field. And my, and my pastor, you know, you know him, Pat Kenny. Because yep. I think, uh, you know, I think God wants us, this little church to continue to impact the world. So why don't you write us a missions policy? So he. This is while you're in the mission field? No, no. This is before we left. Oh, wow. this, before this, you left? Yeah. This is while I was still working. And right, gotcha. and right about the time I, I resigned from regular work uh, and went on staff with the church, which would have been December of 85. So he says, I know God's going to call you to the mission field, that you're not going to be here that long, and, and we're going to get behind you and send you, but why don't you write a missions policy for us that will then function as the launch mechanism for the people that are going to, we're going to send after you. So he gave wow, me the that... freedom, in addition to all the stuff, my responsibilities in the church, I had the freedom to construct our missions program as a local church. And so I started meeting with ACMC. This was an old organization that used to be called Advancing Churches and Missions Commitment, which existed to help churches that want to be hands-on and sending their own people to the field. So I, I gleaned a ton of stuff from them, especially a guy named Larry Walker, a really well-known name in the in the missions world. He he sort of took me under his wing and and gave me a lot of help. And a guy, Neil Perillo, who we referenced on this before, you know, that's yep. sort of his forte. So long story short, my pastor decided, look, we want to be hands-on engaged in the people we send. You could go through a, a regular agency, but we love you and we know what your calling is. And, and we think we can 
we can love on you and we'll take care of all the admin side for you. So you don't need to go out on the traditional path of a missions agency. And so, I, of course, I, I love that. I bought into that. So I basically set up the mechanism that sent me and my family, you know, to the mission field in September of 87. And so now, you know, the terminology would be I was a direct sent missionary. So were you still, were you an employee of the church at the time or were you a 1099? I was an employee contractor. of the church. Yeah, I was an employee of the church. Wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah, very cool. And the, and the church kept me in, the, in that uh, employee status because one of the board members, one of the elders of the church was an accountant that had his own accounting firm. And, uh, you know, and he said, hey, you know, missionaries need to be in employee status, not self-employed contractor status, if you want to really obey the law. And, you know, there's a reason why Wycliffe, New Tribes, Pioneers, all the missions agencies that have been doing this a long time, a lot longer than us, and have uh-huh. resources with nonprofit uh, expertise, attorneys, and, you know, accountants. There's a reason why all these guys employ their people, their missionaries. They W-2 them. There's reason for that, besides the fact that that's the right category that fits the IRS codes. So we went out to the field, you know, as an employee. It was almost like I was a staff member of the church, kept in staff status, but now I'm working in, in the central Philippines. That's fantastic. So so we went, they handled all of our support. I wrote the policy before we left. And then and then we left. And then I got over there and our experience was amazing. Now, you know, keep in mind that this is pre-internet. Right. This is pre-fax. In fact, the fax machine came out while we were in the Philippines. <laughs> it's one of my, one yep, of the stories yep, that I yep. like to tell when, when the fax machine first started functioning in 88, I think it was, you know, Pat would say, Hey Jeff, there, I'm going to send you one of these things called the faxes. There was one fax machine in our city of a million and a half people. And it was an, at a hotel <laughs> in what's called the uptown area of Cebu. And so he goes, I'm going to send you something, you know, go get it. So I, I went down there, you know, it was kind of like, you know, I had to pay like, two bucks, you know, uh, local currency, <laughs> local currency, and wait in a line for a half hour to get a fax. And it was just like the greatest thing. It was unbelievable. <laughs> so uh, it's like getting a telegram. Yeah, telegram. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, $2 a minute phone calls. Um, right. And those kind of things. But man, my pastor, you know, he, they called a, the care we got from our home church was phenomenal. Wow. And so now I'm over there and I'm in a big city, you know, and there's people from other agencies there. I mean, there were probably in our city of 1.5 million, I'd say there were maybe 150 missionaries in that city uh, doing a lot of different kinds of ministry. Well, you get to know them, fellow American missionaries, and they're with all these other organizations, the, the traditional scent approach. And so you build relationships and we talk and you, you, they, they talk, well, what agency are you with? Well, I'm not. I'm out of my home church. What? And, and like, literally, I get raised eyebrows every time I told, you know, what, I, what, what you call it, a traditional missions agency person that I was sent direct from my home church. They're like, they couldn't believe it. I mean, they just didn't have words for it. And, and part of it, sometimes that would be positive. Sometimes it would be negative. Some would think, oh, man, that's awesome that your church would step up the plate to do that. The other half would say, are you kidding me? Churches don't know how to do that. You don't, you know, you uh-huh. need professionals to do that. And, right. and so we developed, you know, relationships with these people and, and our experience was just amazing. And so 
while we were there, that five and a half years we were there, and and you know we had my pastor and a couple elders came a couple visit us a couple times. We, um, my wife, her best friend, and her kids were sent over to visit us. Um, we got back in the day, you know, they were home fellowships and they would record them on cassette tapes and then mail them to us. Somebody, somebody else in the church was would mails. You know, I was into Sports Illustrated, so he would save his Sports Illustrated, mail them. You know, I mean, it was those those kind of days. VHS recordings of the Super Bowl. They would record the Super Bowl on VHS, and then I could watch it three weeks later when I got it in the mail over there. <laughs> <laughs> and fast forward through the commercials, which is like yeah. nowadays you fast forward through the game to watch the commercial. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. So, so all that to say is, you know, it was amazing. So about the time we're clearly God's calling us to come off the field, and I'm thinking that we may be called to go somewhere else after a season in the States. I kind of do a goodbye tour, visiting all my friends around the Philippines. And as I do, these seeds are percolating in my mind of, you know, well, maybe maybe there's a need for some sort of hybrid missions organization that really? does the best of both worlds. Yeah. So this really stuck with you, this, it this, you know, this fact that, I mean, you didn't just like just go on about your day. It sounds like a really, really... You, you saw this as, I don't know, maybe a unique business. I did. Uh, well, not as a business thing. I, I'm just naturally wired. I'm, people say that I have a natural entrepreneurial visionary wiring to me. and I, I would have to agree with that. But yeah, so I had, made, I had made this trip to Manila to see all my friends in Manila before we goodbye because we we're going to fly direct Cebu to Hong Kong instead of having to fly through Manila like you did when we first got there. So I, I went to Manila. I, I took the boat. So this is what was cool. It was a 24-hour boat ride from Cebu to uh, Manila. So I went up there by boat. I met with all my friends. Now these seeds, talking with them and saying goodbye to everybody, all these seeds are, are being planted and these thoughts are percolating in my mind. So I had 24 hours on the boat back to Cebu to just think them through. Like, hey, I wonder if there's there might actually be a niche, you know, for this hybrid missions organization. And then I just put it to rest. Because we came off the field, you know, and I went on staff at another church. And um, and then we ended up uh, after after going on staff with this other church and our reentry experience was phenomenal. I mean, our church, I mean, you couldn't have scripted it any better than the way we were returned, the way we were received when we came back. That's cool. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, just to be, you know, again, not to try to be too specific, but. Hey, a guy in our a guy in the church here was transferred by his job to another state for a year, and they were they were paying the rent on his apartment. So he stored all of his furniture in the apartment that he was in here and told the church, "Hey, if the Jacksons need a place to land, they can land at my place." The church then stocked this empty apartment with no rent on it with furniture <laughs> for us, and then they had a somebody had donated a car. We get off the plane, total jet lag, you know, three kids, um, totally jet lagged after five and a half years in the Philippines. And we we got the key, we get the keys to a car and a fully stocked apartment, and all the groceries were in the cupboards. Right on. It was unbelievable. I hear you saying that oh, these might be too much too many details, but I think that these details are very necessary. You're saying here's a here's what a win looks like for a missionary coming off of the field. Oh, absolutely. And, I think this formula needs to be in. Yeah. 
you know, included. So a lot of businesses start out of a, like out of a, or not businesses, but, you know, organizations, you know, entrepreneurial ideas start out of a bad experience, but is there, there's, there's no bad experience that I'm hearing here. No, not for me personally. It was, uh-huh. it was bad experiences of other missionaries that, that solidified it and, and provoked me to move forward. So you were able to say, man, I am so thankful, you know, just hearing other people's horror stories. You didn't just take it for granted. You're like, wow, this is, this is a way to serve. It is. It, yeah, it was a way to serve. And I had the proper, you know, I, I, I was, I was so well taken care of. And then it just, I would cringe when I hear, when I hear, when I would interact with people, cause I was a known commodity at that time in Calvary Chapel missions because I had field experience. I was, you know, I was a pastor. I'm a fairly good counselor, fairly good teacher. And so I would, when I came back and I, and I actually ended up planting a Filipino church here in San Diego about a year after we got back, but I was, I was sort of in the loop in the missions realm. So I got invited to teach at the Calvary Chapel Bible College to teach the missions classes. And then I got invited to teach, um, you know, perspectives and, uh, and, you know, and, and then all of a sudden I was the guy that, everybody was referring troubled missionaries to. So I started getting calls from crash and burn missionaries, either emotionally or they got problems with the IRS because when they went to the field, everybody said, oh, you're in another country. You don't need to worry about taxes. Now they got a huge IRS bill. And, and it was just like, wow, in my tribe of churches, there's, you know, these people that have gone to the field have, they're, they're coming back and they're a mess. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm interacting with, you know, other people, other missionaries from traditional agencies and, and a lot of what they're, every other ducks are in a row in the area of admin and all that stuff, but they don't really have, they haven't maintained a good connection with their home church and so forth. So it all kind of, it all kind of came together uh, in, in around 1998. I was thinking about all these people that I'm interacting with and all those, all those things I had thought about in the Philippines. Just And I just said, Lord, is it time to create a new sort of hybrid missions organization? I, I think I think this may be what you want me to do, and I didn't I didn't envision it being a full time job or being something that I would leave pastoring a local church for. I just thought there needs to be this entity that will do the stuff a traditional agency does, but leave the home church in the driver's seat, and then equip the home church to to send their own people. Because I think biblically, my ecclesiology, my my bibliology and my missiology show the local church as the vehicle, the primary vehicle through which God wants to accomplish his purposes on the earth. And so I, uh, so yeah, it all kind of came together. And then I was, I was stumbling around trying to figure out, well, what do I call what I, I, I got the idea in my mind, what the entity is going to do, the niche that it's going to serve, what makes it unique. So then I thought, well, what do we call it? You know, what, Lord, what should this thing be? Well, and again, Calvary Chapel people that are listening to this will appreciate this, especially if they're pastors that have been around for a while. But back in the day, the first pastor's conference I went to, which would have been 1983, somebody somebody used a phrase, uh, and this is past Calvary Chapel senior pastors talking to Calvary Chapel senior pastors, said, you know, my heart is that my sheep would be the best fed, best loved sheep of any, of any, of any flock. 
and that that sort of resonated with me. The idea that yeah, that's what a that's the mindset a pastor should have. That his sheep are the best fed and best loved, and the whole idea that you know well fed sheep reproduce naturally. You don't have to force them to do evangelism. Well fed sheep are going to reproduce naturally, and that was sort of the Calvary Chapel mantra. And I think I think that still drives a lot of how Calvary Chapel pastors think today. But so I'm praying about it, right? And I and I thought, well, this entity, you know, I don't want to impede the role of a shepherd uh, uh, of his sheep in a local church. I don't want this to compete with that. But what if this entity could be a tool in the hands of a shepherd to shepherd the sheep that God calls overseas? So that's where the idea of shepherd staff, right, uh, right. mission facilitators, key word, facilitators. So here's this entity that's like the staff in a hand of the shepherd of a local church to care for his sheep that God calls to the other side of the earth. So that, and then I started using that phraseology when I first started explaining it to people. Um, it's yeah. So that, so that your sheep are the best fed, best loved dot, 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 even to the ends of the earth. I'm learning a lot here from you. I didn't realize one that you were on staff from your church. I mean, I knew Pat and have worked with Pat. He's an awesome guy. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you what, I'm just curious is I don't think this matters, but I'm just curious about the size of the fellowship that Pat pastored at the time. Yeah. Well, when I went on, when I went on staff with the church, it was about 150 adults. Okay. And, and, and I guess what I'm trying to say here is that this, it wasn't, a, it was never a mega church. Never, never a mega church. It wasn't yeah. like it was a mega church that had, you know, an administrative staff. And so that they were able to, you know, take care of all of this, this stuff for you guys. It was a small, I didn't realize it was, I didn't realize it was under 300, but yeah. So it's very, very, this, the, this whole concept is very, very in reach for just any size church. It is. And and my in fact, I was the first staff. So there so there was Pat and then there was a church secretary. That was the paid uh-huh. staff. So when I when I came on board cuz I gave up a really high paying job to, to go into the ministry like a lot of other guys did, you know, I was the first paid staff other than Pat and the secretary. Wow. And so at the time I left for the field a year and a half after I went on staff, or almost two years after I went on staff with the church, uh, the church was up to about 200, I'd say 225. And the church, over all the years, the church never, that church that impacted the world in amazing ways, it never had more than, I'd say, 600 adults in it at its peak. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Join us in our next episode when we conclude the story of how Shepherd Staff Mission Facilitators was founded.